0: You're essentially crafting your rock band. What more important job than who I'm hanging out with on a daily basis and hanging out in the tour van? I think it's the most important job of the CEO is who is in
1: the van. Happy Thursday morning, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. Welcome back, Bossman, in the hey, winter cap. Yes, it is
2: still winter here.
1: Uh, no more declaring that winter is over on the podcast. The Texas predictions told you, huh? Our are trash. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay, because we're flying to Mexico in Playa del Carmen next week to meet with 100 listeners of this podcast. Looking forward to some beach time, some infinity pool reflections, and some business breakdowns over some margaritas. It's going to be fun. Ian, we got a really amazing conversation today based on some in-person advising and coaching we've been getting from today's guest. That's right. We are trying to up-level our skill set you know, to reach our business potential. It's not always the case with every business, Ian, but a lot of times we are the limiters in our own ventures as the leaders. And I think one of the things we've both been doing is trying to take our function as leaders in the company, more seriously, learning about things like leadership, management, executive practices. Uh, I think those things are important for our next level of development. So a lot of- That's
2: right, I believe they call that the Peter principle. Yeah. We have reached our own level of incompetence. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) I don't think any of the listeners or long-term listeners
1: are under the impression that we are like these high-functioning entrepreneurs. We are learning along with you guys. We're gonna share a lot of the lessons that we're learning from today's guests and other guests like him Uh, as we progress through this painful process of essentially reinventing ourselves, trying to grow a larger, more sophisticated, more powerful business than we ever have before. And a lot of that is going to be about up-leveling our own personal skill sets. Speaking of which, if you'd like to join us in this journey or know somebody who would, we're going to be hiring a bunch of recruiters this year, first of which we have a job ad live over at Dynamite Jobs. And we would really prefer a podcast listener to come join us. I'll let a secret. We are looking for someone with recruiting experience, but Ian, I have a sneaky suspicion that people with broader sales and people skills would be very good at this position as well. So maybe if you have sales skills, if you have people skills, if you love being on the phone with interesting people all day long, um, this recruiting position is really unique, Ian, because it's not like a lone wolf wake up and make your salary recruiting position. It's really more about evaluating candidates and their fit for our founders, our clients, like listeners of this show, for their companies. If you feel like you can do that kind of matchmaking, you might be a good fit for this amazing role that's 100% location independent. We don't track you. You get to join our amazing little pirate ship of a company, Dynamite Jobs. We have a lot of fun growing this site.
2: We've taken people actually that haven't been from traditional recruiting backgrounds, meaning they weren't recruiters, essentially. And we've turned them into recruiters and we've turned them into sourcers. And like you said, a lot of the people that are attracted to these positions are attracted to talking with people, helping people, understanding people, pushing people forward in their careers. And I think that working with us is interesting in that way that you get to express that part of you, but also there's another hidden gem in this job, which is you get to help us work on our platform. And that's proven to be rewarding as well. So there's kind of two modalities of this position. It's traditional recruiting, but then also using the tools that we are building in-house to make your job easier.
1: Yeah. And I'll also say it's very flexible, Ian, like this idea of speaking with candidates for jobs, speaking with founders, figuring out what's behind the talk. Is this person really qualified for this? Trying to suss out the BS versus the reality, if you feel like you're good at that you can do it in a part-time fashion too, right? This doesn't need to be like a a 60-hour-a-week high-pressure thing. We're just looking for contributors that can help us identify great candidates for great companies. And by the way, that little blurb at the top was partially inspired by today's guest who said, we need to really, really take our own personal time to be recruiting the best possible staff for our company. And we believe that person might be listening to this podcast today.
2: So head over to Dynamite Jobs, type into the search bar recruiter, and you will see our job posting. RDN, let's get rolling into it then. Today's guest was the
1: engineer for the phenomenal growth in a business that many TMBA listeners follow and use. And since stepping back from his role there, he's devoted some of his time to helping founders like Ian and myself with frameworks, tools, and practices that he used with such incredible success. This guy is an incredible executor and implementer and a proven executive, including why everything starts with the people, to use a rock band metaphor that you choose to have on your bus, why all businesses need an avatar of their ideal client, which we have recently done, and how to really hit it big time, you need to stop playing on the field and learn how to be a great coach from the benches. So. I'll just drop the mixed metaphors and get moving into this amazing conversation. I took so many notes about this particular conversation, Ian, that I think we'll need to do an episode about my specific takeaways. So if you got some, jot them down, email them to me, we'll address them in a future show. So enough of the mixed metaphors. This interview was a blast and our guest, like Tiger, LeBron, and Adele before him goes by just his first name.
0: So my name is Eamon. I'm the former CEO of AppSumo. Took them from 3 million to over 100 million in lifetime revenue. And now I'm helping other founders and CEOs do the same. Including me. I've been following (laughs) you
1: around for weeks with a notebook. You've been a real inspiration to me and just want to thank you for that.
0: It's the only way I could give it back. And I've been learning from you and, and Ian for years now. And going back to 2013, when I was in Munich, listening to the Tropical NBA podcast, just serendipitously found out that you guys were doing an event in Berlin, drove up that weekend. And uh, (laughs) I guess the rest is history. I mean, it's almost been 10 years now.
1: Can we talk a little bit about your background? So it doesn't sound like you just came out of thin air here. I mean, I think people can relate to you. Um, At the time that we met in Berlin, I believe you had a job. Could you tell us a little bit about that?
0: Yeah. So prior to that job, I had started and sold two companies, And I was wondering whether or not I was going to continue the startup route or if I was going to potentially go down a more traditional career path. And I asked one of my mentors and he's like, look, you know, Eamon, you're just graduating college. My one recommendation is try to get the best name on your resume because you'll have the rest of your life to do the the entrepreneurial thing, but you really only have a small window right after college to be able to take on these opportunities. That's probably bad advice, but I think it was good at the time. Why is it bad advice? Well, um, I, I, I think the, the bad advice is that I think actually now tech is more open than ever to hiring people from non-traditional backgrounds. It might've been good advice at the time. Back then, you, you kind of needed to come from a college background. You kind of needed to be recruited right out of university. Whereas now, I think the, the Facebooks, the Amazons, the, the larger tech companies are definitely more open to hiring someone from a non-traditional background. But at the time, he's like, let's get the best name on your resume that you could. And so uh, I got a job at Microsoft, was working there for a couple of years and happened to have parlayed myself into an engagement based out of Munich, Germany, which was an absolutely incredible time. And uh, that's how you and I got connected. And I was there for a couple of years and I was wondering, I was getting bored working at a larger company and I'm like, do I get back into the entrepreneurial driver's seat? Or do I join another company? And going back to serendipity, it's one of those things, like that week that I was thinking about that, I got an email from Noah Kagan, who's looking for someone to hire for a growth hacker for sumo.com. And uh, it would be really cool learning from someone like Noah, uh, being able to join an established company and help them get to the next level. And uh, I threw my hat in the ring and the rest is history. It's
1: interesting though, because you were working at Microsoft, man. Like that's the end game for a lot of people. And then a small company, I mean, AppSumo, sumo.com, they weren't anything like they are today. This is back in the day. They were nice lifestyle business run by some guy with a Twitter account. Why, why were you receptive to that message at the time? It seems like a downshift.
0: I don't think it's a downshift at all. I think actually anyone that has a high potential and um, high ambition. I think they're going to learn vastly more from an early stage company than they ever will at a large company. The things you learn at a large company is how to put together a PowerPoint deck and how to sit quietly in a meeting and how to bring up ideas that are really good ideas, but no one's ever going to execute on because it's just too big of a machine. Uh, There is no greater learning than joining an early stage company and be able to have a direct impact on the bottom line. And so to me, I would consider it a hundred percent an upgrade. And I would argue that anyone that's working at the larger companies and finding themselves in the same position that I was, was just sitting in a cubicle bored out of your mind, wondering what else you could do. Definitely
1: join an early stage company and try to make your imprint on the world. Some people credit their corporate experience at larger professional companies as giving them a certain edge when they do step into the entrepreneurial world. Are there some important lessons you took from observing how Microsoft runs that were applicable to you as you became CEO and founder of smaller startups?
0: The one thing that you get is a lot of these larger companies, they're essentially just a conglomeration of a thousand smaller companies. And what I mean by that is like on your floor, there'll be 15 different managers that are running 15 different teams. And it's super clear to you the teams that are doing really well have a direct correlation to ha- those that have really good managers and really good leaders. Whereas when you're working at a smaller company, unless you're working out of a WeWork, it's really hard to know, like, how is everyone else doing? And it's hard to equate where does good performance come from? And it reminds me of this story in Extreme Ownership from Jocko Willink, where they were executing Hell Week, the famous week-long gauntlet that they put all of their Navy SEALs through. And if you are the number one team you get to take a break. And if you're the worst team you got to do more work and of course that's a negative flywheel if you are the worst team because you're already doing bad now you have to do more work you have less rest to do the next one and what ends up eventually happening is the teams end up arguing they fight each other and bajako went to the leader and he's like you need to control your team he's like my team sucks and he's like it's not your team it's the leader and he's like i'll prove it to you he took the leader from the top team swapped the teams and within just a few evolutions the bottom team was now the winning team and it became really crystal clear to me when i was working at a larger company like microsoft that the best teams actually come from the best leaders and there was definitely a trickle down effect and we can sort of unpack that
1: in today's call i'd like that because i believe a lot of us start companies because we have a motivation away from control from responsibility having to have a normal career yet all of a sudden, we build something that has some magic to it. And now we're thrust with the responsibility of having to be a leader. And I think a lot of us are sitting here, myself included, with the intuition that we're actually the rev limiter on a lot of these organizations. It's my leadership, it's my ability to show up for my team that holds us back so much. I know you see a lot of founders, are, they're knocking down your door right now because you're hot off this incredible experience and success. And what are you seeing in founders that holds them back from being better leaders?
0: Yeah, it's a great question. Having worked for AppSumo, we saw over a thousand companies launch. And what was really interesting was doing the look back on the companies that were really successful post-AppSumo launch and the ones that were really stuck in that post-launch. And it became really clear to me, there was like one clear correlation. And it was the founders that had successfully transitioned from being product-led to being people-led. And you have to be product-led to begin the company. It requires so much, it's kind of like launching a plane. It requires so much effort on the uh, the tarmac in order to get that plane off the ground. But once you do, what ends up happening is the founder ends up becoming the bottleneck, to your point, and becomes a limiter. And the reason being is the founder has to do so much. I mean, you will never hire a cheaper, harder working person than yourself, right? When you calculate the (laughs) dollars per hour, you're never gonna hire someone like you ever again. And I get it because it takes so much effort to get a company off the ground that you have to do everything. And what ends up happening is because all of the decisions are flowing through you, because you are involved in every single decision, because you're involved in every single meeting, what ends up happening is that Herculean effort in order to get the company off the ground is actually the very thing, ironically, the very thing that's limiting you from getting to the next level. And so the more that a founder can transition from being a product-led leader to a people-led leader, that's really how they break through what I call like the natural limit, which is typically around the mid seven figures for most companies is they they tend to cap out at, at that point and it stops them from
1: growing to the next level. I want to lay out this framework that you're fleshing out here because I love these kinds of principles that capture what we've seen through hundreds and maybe in your case, thousands of anecdotes. I've seen, for example, the thousand day principle kind of happen time and time again. And then you brought this to me and you're like, hey, there's a reason why so many founders sell when they're mid seven figures. I mean, we sold our business. We were just hitting that rev limiter like 4 million in revenue. And we were like, you know what? Sell. Let's just sell. (laughs) And when you said that, I was like, that's it. He's onto something there. Can you lay out what the different phases are and what the limiters are at the different phases as you see them?
0: I've actually spent a lot of time sort of unpacking and reverse engineering where these companies are limiting. And I I would argue the companies that make it to the mid seven figures, first of all, that's wildly successful. I want to first commend that. Like To get to that point is absolutely success. And it's direct result of, to me, three major levers. It's number one, you have an ideal client. That's your person. You've got an incredible product and you know how to promote. So it's person, product, and promotion. That's what gets you to the mid seven figure mark. And a lot of times, that product and that promotion is a direct result of the founder's influence. And so figuring out, well, what do I need to do in order to get next level? Step one is, I I would argue, let's figure out the process for how you make money from end to end. So for AppSumo, we would, looking for companies on Monday, reaching out to them on Tuesday, closing the deal on Wednesday, writing copy on Thursday, sending the email on Friday, and doing it all over again the following week. So that was our process. And so that's step one before you even hire anyone, is you should actually break down your process for your business. How does an idea turn into actual money in the bank for yourself and your company? And then based on that process, let's figure out where can the founder be the best in the world at? Where should they be spending their time? And where are the things that actually were wasting their time? And so for me personally, with AppSumo, I found that I could be best in the world at closing incredible deals for our customers, but I was less good at let's say the copywriting or less good at actually setting up the deals. And so those are the areas that you should be hiring for. So before you ever end up just leaving, like, let me hire someone, let's actually break down like who you should hire for. And so that's step one is process. Step two is people. And I would argue that as you continue to scale, your job is essentially kind of like a college football coach you're only in recruiting mode. mean, the best teams are all about recruiting. And so if you really want to break through into eight and nine figures, you kind of have to see yourself as a college football coach. And as you see, like there's a huge difference between Alabama and some bottom tier company. It's like very big difference. And you can be the Alabama of your industry because there's no rules. You can pay people as much as you want. You can hire the best. You can recruit the best. And so there's no rules in terms of how you hire. And you should be working on figuring out how do you build a championship team. Then and only then, after you've nailed process and people, then you figure out the plan. So to me, it's kind of going back to the Jim Collins approach. Let's get the right people on the bus and then let's figure out where the bus should go. I think too many people start with a plan versus let's get the right people in place. And the reason being is you could be like, our plan is to be the world's best. I'm going to use the football analogy again, the world's best passing team. But if all you're recruiting is on a great offensive lineman and running back, you kind of have to change your plan. And so let's nail the people first and then build on those strengths in order to figure out the plan. Then after that, it's performance. So how are we executing against that plan? And then and only then are we thinking about psychology. And so it's really a five-step process. It's the process, the people, the plan,
1: performance, and psychology. You're bringing in people that buttress the process of making money. So rather than planning into the future, you're looking at the past to say, what's the engine of profit here? We're hiring around that engine of profit, and then we're putting a plan in place to move forward.
0: So you can't build a plan that builds towards the future. If your day is spent making profit today, there's not enough hours in the day for the founder to worry about the future if they're worried about paying the bills for next month. And so, step one is let's get you out of the day to day. And so, in order to get you out of the day to day, you have to understand how do you make money today? And then, how do I hire for that process so that I can extract myself from the day to day to then focus on the future? And so, Early on at AppSumo, I was spending all of my time. I was closing every deal, writing every piece of copy, doing customer support. I was doing it all. And then at the end, I was working two or three or four quarters ahead, sometimes two to three years ahead, because the day-to-day was being taken care of. And I think that's the ultimate goal for most founders and CEOs is like, how do I get to the point where I'm I'm operating two to three years ahead and the day-to-day fire drills are handled by a really incredible team?
1: What's interesting to me about your story and this framework is you've really lived this magic moment where... So many of us are running a seven-figure business, and there's question marks about how to grow it to the eight, nine-figure realm. Well, you actually did it. You took a business that not everybody assumed had the potential to go there. And what were the things that you saw that first made you think it had the potential? And then maybe we can move on to some of the things that you did.
0: I remember the very first call that I had with Noah. I'm like, I think AppSumo has a lot of meat left on the
1: bone. And the reason being is
0: number one, I was a customer. I had been purchasing from AppSumo
1: for years. To clarify, Noah brought you in because he was working on another business at the time, like so many of us do. When we reach that seven figure, we were hanging out the other day and I was like pitching you on some new idea.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, I
1: love that founder energy. You and Noah
0: have a lot of similarities. You're always thinking about like what's next, like what's the the next level of innovation. And I love that founder energy because that's really how the future is created. But. I would argue there's a lot of opportunity to grow what you already have. It takes so much effort to get where you are. And it's very easy to then jump on the shiny object syndrome, but having that doggedness to stick through it and actually build the systems, even myself included. I launched another company two to three years into my journey at Absolute. So I made the same mistake. I get it. The new thing is always (laughs) more fun. And in hindsight, I would have much rather have spent that time doubling down on the core business
1: rather than worrying about the next thing. You know, I have this like to-do list when I walk away from our, our meetings. And the first one was the avatar, mm. which I came up with enterprising, Ethan, and, and it's really galvanized some conversation in our company. I'm wondering if you can describe the importance of the avatar and at what phase uh, this is at most critical. Yeah.
0: It's funny. You, know, you and I were talking about the triad, the person, product, and promotion. And I tell people all the time, if if you don't have an ideal client, if you don't have that ideal person then you're creating a product for everybody. And that's kind of like writing a love letter and addressing it to whom it may concern. It's not going to captivate the hearts and minds of anyone. And so the more that you can get super specific with who are you writing this love letter to, who are you building this product for, the better your product innovation will be. And I'll give you an example. At AppSumo, when I joined, we were doing everything under the sun. We were doing courses, eBooks, software, Uh, templates, fonts, everything. And we took a step back and we go, who are we really building for? Who's our ideal client? And one thing that became crystal clear to us was there was this one subset of customers that was number one, I think the first thing you ask is who has the potential to be the most profitable customer for us? And I think profitable is really an important question because it answers several things. Number one, who's the most likely to purchase from you multiple times? Who's the most likely to refer you more customers? Who's not going to be a pain in the ass to your customer support team? Who are you pumped about and excited to serve? And then more importantly, who can be a great evangelist for your brand? And for us, when we look through our our customer cohorts, there was one particular segment, marketing agency, Matt. This is us. He's running a seven-figure agency. He's buying AppSumo deals on behalf of his non-tech savvy clients. And so he's purchasing several licenses to serve his clients. And because of that, he finds immense value in the AppSumo brand. And so for us, we were like, well, what does marketing agency Matt do? He basically charges a monthly retainer to his clients and then gives them marketing advice and just more and more marketing help. And so the more that we could double down on marketing software tools specifically, particularly lifetime software tools, because marketing agency Matt's revenue was up and down every month. And so if he could keep his costs fixed, if he could pay one time and never have to worry about those costs again, he could have more control over his business. Just by, fo- just by making that one decision, Dan, by focusing on marketing agency, Matt, we were able to triple our customer lifetime value. And when you think about it, when you triple your customer lifetime value, you can't help but triple your revenue.
1: Was that the most important exercise?
0: No, no. The yeah. unfortunate truth is that the business changes every time the business doubles. I typically say like when you're at 1 million, then if you're at 3 million, then you're at 6 million, then you're at, million, then you're at 12 million. Those tend to be the inflection points for the business. Walk us through those. That's really fascinating. Yeah. So, I mean, this kind of goes back to the framework that I was mentioning earlier. At $1.2 is typically when process is super critical. That's typically when you're starting to hit the upper limits of the business and you need to unpack what is the process that we put in place in order to make money. At Around $3 million is when you need to start focusing on people. And I, the reason I bring these up is it's a little earlier than most companies need it, but I think it's important because it takes time to learn the recruiting. At $6 million is when you're typically focusing on your plan. And then at 12 million is when you really need to nail down performance. At each of these stages, it's more and more critical. The way I equate it is you're building the foundations for your skyscraper, and the deeper the foundations go, the higher the skyscraper can go.
1: I just want to give a big thanks to all of you who listened to ads like this and went on over to dynamitejobs.com to see what we've got going on over there. Because of that... We've helped place hundreds of qualified remote professionals in your companies last year. And for this holiday season, many of you are gearing up your operation for continued growth in 2022. And to help you do it, we've got three exciting options for you to explore. The first is our entirely new hiring platform with a job post dashboard that allows you to repost and promote anytime. We've got a growing list of features there, including intelligent promotion options to help you get the maximum amount of applications. We've also got our done-for-you service. If you're sick of sorting, assessing, and interviewing, you can hire our senior recruiting staff to do the heavy lifting on your behalf. They are experienced at identifying trajectory, alignment, salary fit, and much more. And the best part is it's a flat fee. If you're hiring multiple times in 2022, we're offering bundles with steep discounts. Head on over to dynamitejobs.com and book a call to hear about that. And finally, we offer contract recruiting. That's right. A zero risk hiring option. If you don't really know about the long-term fit, or if you're looking for a partner to help take care of the legalities of hiring contractors, we can do that for a monthly fee for the contractors that you bring on board. So let's grow together. If you're looking to grow your remote business, book a call with our team and find out today how Dynamite Jobs can help. You can find out about this and much more over at dynamitejobs.com slash recruiting I'm wondering if it's at all interesting to read Enterprising Ethan here. I think so, let's hear it. Our candidate avatar is named Remote Riley. I'll leave her on the table for the minute. Listeners of this podcast probably fit in more to our ideal avatar. His name is Enterprising Ethan. Um, Ethan founded a quickly growing productized service company that helps small businesses grow. Their annual revenue is around $2 million a year. They have around 40 people in the milieu between employees and contractors and plan to hire 10 people in the next year. They are remote first. Ethan lives in America, but his staff is globalized. Uh, Ethan is very open-minded about where his staff is located. He cares mostly about demonstrated hard skills and experience over credentials. They have two company retreats a year. Ethan's project manager is in charge of the recruiting process. Uh, and they have experience hiring, but aren't a dedicated recruiter or HR team. They use multiple job boards, typically two or three, to maximize the number of applications they receive. They have a solid idea of the budget for each position. They promote and clear preferences, but not entrenched when it comes to the hiring process. They do not yet have in-house HR team, but they are experimenting with services like deal.
0: I love it. It reminds me of, of Dan and Ian just a few years ago. You're building the thing you wish you had a few years ago.
1: Yeah. I took your advice right away and presented Ethan and Riley to the team. And it has galvanized a lot of the conversations because it helps us to know where to look, how to frame copy, how to be braver in our marketing. Because the interesting thing about enterprising, Ethan, I think a lot of entrepreneurs like you want to keep the door open. Like, okay, well, if Spotify wants to like call us up, we'll take the call. Mm -hmm. But the thing is, is I wear like these really nice. Running shoes that maybe are the same running shoes that a world class marathoner runs, but I'm not a world class <laughs> marathoner. I'm 20 pounds overweight, you know. What I mean? But that I think entrepreneurs have a real trouble with that, Amen. Which is saying, mm. like, here's who we're for because we're always open. We want to be open to that new revenue, that new client that could change our year.
0: Yeah, but before we unpack that, I'd love to hear a little bit more, like how have conversations changed once
1: you've drawn that line in the sand? One of the things is who we're trying to sell to and who we serve is actually a very complicated thing. Because where's our reference point? Is it our monthly revenue? Is it our email inbox for that day? Is our CRM tells us? And I think it was valuable for the whole team to come together and agree upon using multiple data points, anecdotes, and experience that this is actually the person that's making the difference. And it's given us a starting point for conversations and something that we can falsify and improve. Whereas before I think it was a combination of impressions. And so the conversations seem to have less traction because it's like, well, so-and-so is a good client too, mm. you know?
0: It allowed your team to have more clarity of like who to go after. And when you're making decisions, you're like, well, how does this serve you then? First, let's keep the door open to like, maybe there's a Spotify
1: engagement in the future. Yeah. And hopefully there will be, Amen. Yeah. Spotify. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well here's the thing is like there's I mean going up market is part of the startup playbook right like hey we're in, now that we've built the foundation we can go into enterprise but I think getting crystal clear on who you are today and like how do you best serve them is the only way that that opportunity will even ever present itself if you don't win the war today how will you ever win the battle tomorrow and so first and foremost for us when we made that decision and I see this with several of my clients once they've made that decision In fact, one of my clients, he made this decision to go after a specific type of clientele. He basically cut half of his business in half because he's like, this part of the business is draining me. And it was a very scary decision for him. And he was able to double down on the part of the business that he was most excited about. And over the last several months, he has now more than made up that revenue just by simply doubling down on the type of customer. And he's happier than he's ever been before. And he's more excited because this is the type of business that he wants to create. Before he was like, I'm just going to take everything under the sun. And here's why it's so critical. We were worried about that too, Dan. We were like, well, if we're doubling down on marketing agency, Matt, are we alienating Side Hustle Sally, right? Are we alienating the enterprise customers? And what we ended up realizing is by us doubling down on marketing agency, Matt, by making that clear distinction, several things happened. Number one, the marketing agency, mats became evangelists for us and we're constantly talking and singing our praises. So our marketing costs went down. Number two, because we were able to double down on the marketing agency mats, we were then able to just through the fact that we were creating these incredible deals, still attract the side hustle salaries. They were still getting benefit from the deals that we were putting together. And because they were so world-class because we were delivering these incredible deals, we were still able to serve other parts of the market. And so I, I don't think it's an either or scenario, it's about by doubling down and speaking to that single person, you're able to be successful with one market that will then allow you to be successful in others. And I noticed that too when I was writing copy for AppSumo. Whenever I made the copy too generic and be like, this webinar tool could be for anyone. It never worked as well as I'm like, if you're a
1: coach, you need this right now. So I took this advice, made the avatar, presented it to the team. I'm buying it and I see the value in it. The thing that I'm anxious about is I also intuitively feel that you're right, that there was a reason we sold our last business at $4 million. And there's Mm -hmm. a reason why our current business is is where it's at. And I know that Ian and I need to improve or have somebody around who's better in order to beat the limiter. And so part of what I'm worried about is how do you be a CEO, right? You mentioned that there's a kind of a moment when you become a CEO. I'm -hmm. the kind of guy that like, hey, I was just putting screenshots into a uh, sketch and like putting red lines on it about moving shit around like product, promotion, let's run this ad campaign. I'm that classic faltering mm-hmm. seven-figure entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. How do I become an eight-figure CEO? And what do I even do every day? How does that yeah. start to evolve? <laughs> <laughs> I'm a people person. I'm good with people.
0: The classic. Uh, Um, what's that movie called? Classic office space, office space. That's right. Filmed in Austin. What a great movie. So there's a three stage process in terms of, um, of how you transition to being more of that people led CEO. Step one is, is you have to become a recruiter. And I know that's something that not a lot of people are excited about doing, but you have to carve out the time in your week to actually dedicate yourself to let's recruit for the process that we laid out. I I talk all the time to to, to my clients and I'm like, well, how important is building your team? And they go, very important. And then I'm like, let me see your calendar. And there's zero hours dedicated to recruiting. And I'm like, clearly there's a disconnect here. Clearly you'd much rather spend time on product, which is your home and you enjoy, than you would on recruiting. Or you'd much rather spend time on promotion, being on Twitter, because that's fun. And that's the thing versus let me carve out some time and actually recruit the team. And so that's step one is let's get the team in-house. And If you have more money than time, I would recommend hiring a recruiter, either in-house or go external, because it is a tough job carving out the time, actually putting together the job descriptions. It's not easy, and that's the reason that people are coming to DJs, because you guys are delivering incredible
1: candidates. The particular part that's hard is, as a a founder, your ability to recruit is so much more profound Mm -hmm. than someone who's a a mid-level employee, because you're speaking different languages. Part of what we're trying to provide at DJ is high level recruiting at a flat mm-hmm. rate. In other words, people who've been there that can speak right. at an executive level. Yeah. It's hard to get those executive hires if you're not an executive yourself, in right. other words. It's so true.
0: It's so true. And I would argue that the recruiter for yourself should just be teeing up opportunities for you to speak to candidates rather than speaking candidates on your behalf. Like they should not be recruiting for your company, especially early on. They should be instead screening candidates going through that process, looking at job applications, screener videos, and being like, hey, Dan, I think you should meet with this candidate. It's almost like a sales process. Like If you're thinking about like a sales development representative, and what they're doing is they're trying to get calls for their account executives, that's essentially what you want your recruiter to
1: do at this stage of the company. One of the challenging things about running a mid-seven-figure company that has a bunch of employees that run basic processes we talk about SOPs like we've got contractors that run the Facebook ads you have players in place but you might not have the high level people yet and so if you get to seven figures that might be the first time that you're making meaningful money off of your business and so you're put in this conundrum where you know hiring executive level people right now could cost you 130, 150, $100,000 a year, even $80,000 a year with three different people. We're talking about an enormous chunk of money that's going to hit your purse, (laughs) your wallet (laughs) directly. Yeah. And I feel like that's a limiter that a lot of us founders face. It's like, man, finally I got some money. And now I got to go out and hire somebody that I don't even know if they're going to contribute. Yeah. And this is
0: why we go back to the process. I think if you're, going, okay, we made some figures, time to hire a CEO, it's dead in the water. It's gonna be a waste of money. I, I see this all the time. It's like, we're making a little bit of money. Let's hire those, been there, done that executives that have the Rolodex, you know, we're using the pocketbook, like old school example. They got the Rolodex. They're gonna bring in so much business. Every time I see them, it's just a waste of money. But instead, if you were to go back to your process, Dan, and go, well, how are we making money? And if we were to remove one thing off of my plate, could I be spending more time on a part of that that actually drives us to make more money, it actually should ROI. And for AppSumo, I noticed, hey, if I'm spending time setting up the deals, that's less time me jumping on sales calls. And so by me hiring someone that literally was just going in and doing the HTML and filling out the form, it was like a very regimented process, but it'd take a couple hours for each deal. If instead I could spend that time closing deals, that could double the amount of deals that we do per week. And if we double the amount of deals, we could double the revenue. And so for uh, an accounting firm, for instance, the person's going out and trying to close business, but then he's also doing tax returns. So if he could hire someone to do the tax returns, because he's like, I'm actually better at closing the business, then I could bring in double the business. And so the very first hires, Dan, should directly ROI for the business. It might be a a short-term hit while you're onboarding and training them, but you should start to see that impact within 90 days to six months. And that uplift essentially should be not just paying for themselves, but but having significant uplift for the overall business. And that's a great discipline to learn is how do I choose the hires that are actually going to ROI, especially if you're a bootstrap business, how do I choose the hires that are going to ROI for my business every single time?
1: I'm trying to transition to to be a CEO now, to be a better executive in my own company. I'm going to start carving out dedicated time for recruiting and prioritizing recruiting products rather than delegating them. That's the first thing that I'm hearing. Um, and that was a clear takeaway I got from meeting with you that we're talking about hiring a new front-end developer who's going to be building a key product. If we're talking about hiring a new marketing person, like that deserves my time and attention. That shouldn't be delegated. What's the next thing that I should be focusing on?
0: So the next thing is actually like, how do you transition to being more of a coach? You bring these people on. And I think that a lot of times you hire someone and you go, well, all right, we hired them to do copy and they better learn how to do copy. And then they, they write copy and the copy sucks, not in your voice. And you go, ah, I knew it. I could do everything myself. I'm going to fire this person and go back to do it. This is the common trap that I see all the time. And the number one thing with a coach is recognizing that not everyone is going to hit a PR on day one. And I would argue a PR is the way you write copy or the way you do things. And so let's coach them up. Let's actually like create some training moments for them. And so we actually hired to this day, Chris Greon, phenomenal. When he finally came on to us full-time, his manager, who who's a first-time manager, she's now grown the team alone. She's phenomenal. She had never managed someone before. And so she asked him, hey, Chris, the email's going out on Friday, can you send me the copy on Thursday? And he gave her the copy on Thursday and it was not ready for publish. And so seven o'clock at night, she's freaking out. He's nervous, she's nervous. They're both working on the copy together and she's just like, move, let me do it myself. And so I had to coach her up. I'm like, look, that's my fault. She had never been a manager before. She'd never been a coach before. You have to create work back moments. So if you need the copy on Thursday, let's actually provide two or three editing cycles prior to that Thursday deadline. Let's review V1 on Monday. I'm going to give you some edits. V2 on Tuesday. I'm going to give you some edits. And then on Wednesday, we're going to workshop it together. You're going to look over my shoulder and I'm going to talk you through how I would write the copy. And then all of a sudden, Gurion started to pick it up. It started to go from three rounds of edits to two rounds of edits to one round of edit. Now, today, Gruyan's running a four-person copywriting team. He's, hes the copy's never been better before. Alona doesn't touch copy whatsoever. And she was able to coach him into being the world-class leader and the world-class copywriter that he is today. We're to this day getting emails going, how is Absumos copy so great? And so you can't just expect on day one, the person's gonna know how to do the, the job. You have to be a coach and coach them up. And your job is going to get harder before it gets easier. And you have to carve out the time in order to
1: do that. I think that's hard for a lot of founders. What sort of time allocation are we talking about? Like how many people can you realistically coach and how do you just you know, execute that throughout the week? So
0: that's why you shouldn't be hiring too fast, too early. You should be hiring, like really dedicating your time and spending like maybe one or two hires until you've developed the systems in place. And the good news, like we mentioned with Gurion, he's now recruiting on on the copywriting team's behalf. Additive, it's multiplicative. And so the more that you can coach these people to, to build out, the more exponential growth you'll have further down the line. And so my recommendation, you should be carving out 30 minutes every single day for the person's first two weeks. You should be meeting one-on-one on on a 30-minute basis at a minimum. And the reason being is there's so many new questions that the person will have. Like, what does this mean? What does this acronym mean? How do I do this? Where can I find that? And knowing that they have 30 minutes every single day to get these questions answered, I think is super critical because If not, they're going to be pinging you all day and you're going to get frustrated. So carve out that time, ideally in the beginning of the day, what are you going to work on? What's blocking you? And are there
1: any open questions? I feel like a lot of founders have a blockage to doing what you just uh, advocated for, which is 30 minutes a day. Often because we're hiring for reasons that are emotional. I mean, we have a, emotion is a lot of. The motivation to find data. So we found the data that there's ROI to hire. We found mm-hmm. the data, but there's also an emotion along with that smart, rational decision, which is, I don't want to do this shit anymore or whatever.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, 100%. You're not recruiting away the fun stuff, right? Like you recruit the shit that you keep pushing on your calendar, at least in the beginning, right? Eventually you want to get everything off your calendar, but 100%. But what's the alternative, Dan? that this person doesn't get coached up that they flounder they end up leaving and then you go well i knew it and then you end up having it to stick on your calendar forever and so if you're not carving out the time if you're not willing to put in the effort think about people development is like product development like what great mvp gets launched in 30 minutes right immediately no it requires a little bit of time at least a month to get a proper mvp going And I think the more that you can think about that with your people and be able to like, hey, we're going to meet daily for 30 minutes for two weeks. And then we might move to every other day and then eventually two or three times a week. And then eventually you get to the point where you're meeting weekly. By the end, some of my executives, I only needed to meet with them once a month because they knew their realm of expertise so well that they didn't need me to coach them anymore. They were experts in their domain and they were off running to the races.
1: Where does the performance element come into it?
0: the performance element comes in once the business starts to make a little bit north of 10 million dollars in revenue or you get more than 10 people uh whichever comes first and the reason being is like once you get to i call it the two-car effect right doing a road trip with one car is easy once you get to two cars you start to leave people at the red light and so that's really when you need to start to coach up and worry about performance the performance is what are the kpi that each individual is responsible for so if i hire a salesperson how much what's in their pipeline and how much are they closing If they're a customer support agent, what is the average ticket time and how many open tickets are there? If they're doing engineering, what's their velocity? Uh, How many features are they shipping? And unless you're able to have that dashboard, for us, we had a single one-pager spreadsheet. And every week on Monday morning, everyone on the team would update their specific single KPI and mark it whether it was red, green, or yellow. And I would be able to go in there Monday morning, look through the KPIs and essentially with just 30 minutes a day, know how the business was doing. It's essentially you're the cockpit pilot that night all of us jumped on the customer support tickets we got back to inbox zero and we were able to get back to zero and i'm like i never want that to happen again and we created the dashboard that night
1: if you need help getting control of your email inbox this is for you that's right this episode is brought to you by the team at mailmanhq.com it's a gmail plugin that lets you decide when and what emails land in your inbox many of our listeners spend a huge portion of their days inside of their inbox, and if you're one of them, pay close attention to the next 30 seconds. See, Mailman allows you to set up your own emailing schedule on both your personal and work Gmail accounts, such that all incoming emails are collected and delivered to your inbox as per the schedule you set up that's in batches so nothing drops in between. Now, what about those urgent emails? Don't worry. Mailman lets you configure your VIPs so their emails will land in your inbox immediately so you can respond and make progress in your business. And there's so much more too. So get a defender and an ally in your inbox. Get Mailman. Sign up for a free account over at mailmanhq.com slash tropical MBA. If you use that link and decide to upgrade to a paid plan, you'll get 30% off your first year via this link. So here it is again, mailmanhq.com tropical Tropical MBA. Thanks to the team at Mailman HQ for sponsoring the show. Go give them a try. Give them a look. Get ahead on your inbox. Again, that's mailmanhq.com slash tropical MBA. We talked about recruiting. We talked about mm-hmm. coaching. And you mentioned there was three things. What's the third thing?
0: So the next one is servant leadership. So you've coached them up. Now they're off on their own. And now it's really about like, how do I serve my leaders? And the reason being is that the leader is there to serve the individual. You work for them. They don't work for you. You know, you're there to give them a great life. They're not there to give you a great life. And I think the more that you can truly embody that, which is like, what does my team need from me? Like, what's their five-year plan? Are they wanting to launch a business? How can I help them accomplish that versus like, you do what I say because I'm the boss or because I pay you? like what's going to happen is they're going to just leave you for the person who's going to pay them more. Versus like if someone believes you truly have their back and are truly in their corner, that they're aligned around the purpose of the business, those are the people that are willing to knock down walls in order to help accomplish your mission. I think it was a big reason why AppSumo, we had people that were working for us for four, five, six years in an industry, in startups, where it's lucky if you have someone sticking around for 18 months. And it was because we were truly vested in people having great lives and helping them achieve their dreams. And so once they feel like they're coached up, you really have to become that servant leader and figure out like, what does my team need for me versus what I need for my team? How do you
1: decide how much to pay somebody and how do you decide when to fire people?
0: It's tough, right? Because pay when you're first starting out is thumb in the air. You kind of like just, oh, that seems fair, right? You tell me what you want. And I think that works great when you're small, but then eventually like you're like, "Well, this person's overpaid and this person's underpaid." My recommendation is have some level of research. Try not to overinflate titles. Don't give someone chief of engineering if they're the only engineer on the team, because then it'll be hard for you to match the pay that you see on, let's say, Glassdoor or any of these other online public places. And so let's map the pay to match what the actual title is. And so if they're not managing anyone, they're kind of just a senior engineer. Let's pay them like a proper senior engineer. And so that's number one is like, let's make sure that people are paid what they're worth. What's their market worth? And obviously as a startup, it's very difficult for you to compete against the, the Googles of the world. And so you have to also not just think about pay, but what are the intangibles? What are the benefits I'm providing? For us, we had a very flexible working environment. If you wanted to hit the gym at 12 o'clock, by all means, we don't do clock watching we give people the opportunity to go and work on their side hustles. They were able to to download AppSumo apps and like use them to help grow their business. And so there was a lot of intangibles. And most importantly, people were excited about the mission. I would argue pay is probably the least important thing when it comes to recruiting. It's just something that you like have to
1: just take care of as a baseline. If you're good at recruiting. Yeah. You mentioned like a lot of most companies aren't good at recruiting, right? They're they're not crafting a mission, they're not describing it. Mm-hmm. They're not humanizing their company, they're not selling a lifestyle that goes along with being part of the team, right. the rock band. Yeah. And I think that it's really hard to hire somebody to do that on your behalf, which is mm-hmm. why I think you're saying that this is a third of your job as a CEO is to actually do precisely this. That's 100%. I mean, and you're essentially crafting your rock
0: band. What more important job than who I'm hanging out with on a daily basis and hanging out in the tour van? I think it's yeah. the most important job of the CEO is who is in the van. The first 10 hires dictate the first 100 hires. And I think that if you're not really in tune with who am I hiring right from the get-go, you're not going to build the company of your dreams. And if you don't sell because you're hitting revenue bottlenecks, you're going to sell because you, d- you don't like the company that you've built.
1: Which happens all the time. Why?
0: It goes back to these frameworks is because at one of these stages, you were not crystal clear on who you were serving. So if we go back to the person, they serve enterprise clients when they hate enterprise companies. Can't stand Microsoft. Why am I like losing stress over that? Like I'm out, right? If they don't have the right product innovation, they're unable to sell the solution to that ideal client. They don't have a good promotion strategy. They're unable to find customers at a repeatable and scalable way. Their processes are constantly broken. They don't know how they make money. They've never broken it down. Their people suck. Every time they show up to a meeting, they go, oh God, this person again. And it's like, it's all of these like foundational elements, you know, it's going back to like the basics, right? Like the world's best at anything have just simply taken the basics to the extreme. And the more that you can master these elemental basics, the easier it'll be to build a company that you're super excited
1: and and pumped about building and really being a part of for the long term. One of the things that's empowering about your line of thinking and I know it was, you mentioned it was born through pain and necessity, which is you had to figure out how to do all this stuff on the fly. You guys went to three to 80 plus, and you were pipeline and information like this podcast, trying to figure out how to do it. And when you turn around and you create abstract principles about your experience, it gives me a mental agility to think different things. Because now all of a sudden, if I have marketing agency Matt or enterprising Ethan, I can easily change that because it's not a specific reality. It's a principle mm. that mm-hmm. now I have mental agility. You're very good at abstracting your experience into a universally applicable principle. It doesn't mean the principle is going to work all the time. It just means now it's a tool instead right. of a story you heard sometime. And I'm curious, like, is that what we need to be good at to be CEOs? Or do you need to be the smartest person in the company to be the CEO? Like, what was it about you that made you the CEO and there's 120 other people that weren't the CEO? How do you distinguish yourself in terms of your role and skill set? Is it just that you're the smartest person there?
0: No, it's funny. I didn't come up with these frameworks until after I stepped down. And it's kind of like that old Steve Jobs quote. You can only connect the dots looking back. You can't connect them looking forward. How would I have known that psychology was going to be important as we approach 24 million in revenue? I did not realize that until I was looking in hindsight and then going and speaking to other companies that were at this stage and go, oh yeah, we were actually dealing with that same problem at the same time. And like, it's so funny how many companies actually go through the same issues, the same stages. It's really related to like tribalism, like as a tribe grows, things start to break down and you have to rethink it similar to companies. And so I did not know these things while I was going through it, but really, I think what I really nailed down was probably, number one, I recruited incredible people. I would put my team at AppSumo up against any company in the world. I think they were absolutely world-class, and I really enjoyed putting that team together. And I think they were phenomenal at what they did. I think they all had a chip on their shoulder because they didn't come from traditional backgrounds. And I think they had something to prove. And so I think that's number one. The fact that we were all invested in the plan, we, we were all invested in the mission because we worked on it together. And I think that when you have those two things, it, you can't help but have incredible performance. The people are committed. They're all accountable. They're all responsible. They don't need to be micromanaged. And I think that they were all able to, to really roll up their sleeves and get the job done. And I think when you start with those foundations, it made my job really easy because I was able to just simply go and be that servant leader for them and help them get unblocked and help them worry about how do they do their job better? Because they that's what they wanted to do. They wanted to be the best in the world at sales. They wanted to be the best in the world at marketing. They wanted to level up and be a future CMO, or they wanted to be a future COO. And I just wanted to carve out a path that allowed them to get there.
1: So what are some of the processes around servant leader? Because you're mentioning facilitating their future dreams. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also a lot of talk about CEOs facilitating the company's future dreams. I'm assuming you have to find some overlap between the two. Is So yeah. I get what recruiting is and I get what coaching is. What are some of the other elements of servant leadership?
0: So part of being a good manager is also doing like some performance reviews. And so every quarter we would meet up and we go, well, how did you do this last quarter against your KPIs? How did you do against your performance, against your goals? And is there anything that I can do to help out? And one of the key questions is like, where do you see yourself five years from now? And I made the space very safe for them to go. I don't expect that to be at AppSumo. If you want to go and start your own business, I want you to tell me, because what I want is to craft a role that matches your jobs. Because as the company scales, there's an infinite number of jobs to be done. If I know what what skills you're trying to level up on, we can carve out a role for yourself. And so, for instance, Alona, who's now our top ranked person at the company, she's absolutely incredible. She was running our content team and she was in charge of all of our content marketing, launching our YouTube videos, doing our email. And she's like, look, I actually like, when I look at the landscape, I actually like operations a lot. I like processes, I like the way a company runs, and I definitely want to learn more about that. And at the time, the person that was doing operations was going, hey, actually, I want to focus more on customer experience, and customer support. So it was like, I mean, this is a match made in heaven. We were able to do sort of like a, a simple swap and like be able to carve out roles for both of them that matched what they said that they wanted. And so we were able to move Alona into an operations role, and that's a role that the company needed. And we were able to move the other individual into a a more customer experience focused role. And I think the more that you can focus on that, the more that you can focus on what does the person need, the easier it'll be for you to then be like, well, what does the company need? And so that's your job as a CEO is, well, what does the individual need? And is there a role for that in the company? If there isn't, then it's, it's important to have that conversation, be like, hey, if that's what you wanna do, That probably doesn't exist here at the company. And so you can be here as long as you want, continue to do your thing, but maybe I can help you find an opportunity outside of this company. And people will really appreciate that. For instance, like we had one person that like really wanted to be part of the video team. We didn't have any openings. And unfortunately there's not, but if an opening opens up in the future, we can figure that out. But if you want, you can feel free to do that on your free time in addition to your work. And he really resonated with that. And he found himself
1: now moonlighting for the video team and he really enjoys it. Okay. So I try to recap this because I want to move. We're in a march of P's right now, and we're dead set in the middle of this kind of seven to eight figure P, which is a combination of the plan and the performance. Mm -hmm. Previously, we had done the people, the process, the money-making process, and the promotion. Mm -hmm. Then we moved on to the plan Mm-hmm. and we're marching through those seven and eight. We're getting just to that eight-figure point, and now we're caring about performance, which is some of the servant leadership stuff. Yep. Now we're getting into rarefied air aim, and we we're talking about psychology, and we're going to move on to protection. I'm fascinated. I have no idea what you're going to say. What happens at $24 million?
0: <laughs> your brain is an asshole. You of all people would know that, right? You studied philosophy. philosophies. like your brain is constantly searching for survival. It's one of those things that I constantly need to be trained, And I think at this level, at at the psychology level, people start to wonder, where are we going? Where is the business going? Where am I going? Where is my career going? And more importantly, you as the CEO, this is where like the company is getting long in the tooth and you're starting to wonder, like, well, where am I going? And I would argue that 80% of the bottleneck at any company is the leader always. And I would argue 80% of the bottleneck of the leader is the psychology of the leader. And so, How are you staying energized? How are you staying excited about the company? How are you staying pumped about the future of the business? How are you being able to cultivate a culture that knows what to work on and making sure that you're hiring the people that match the first 10 people that you hired, and that are able to not let in the negativity creep in, which is inherent with any business as you start to grow. And so psychology is really about, how do you carve out the time? And I used to spend my Fridays on this carve out the time to make sure that the team feels energized, the team feels excited that we're running sprints and we're also celebrating at a proper space versus just feeling like this is a constant run because at 24 million, you're starting to have done this for quite some time. And I think it's important to establish those frameworks upfront about what does culture look like at this company? What does success look like at this company? And then most importantly for you, how do you as a leader stay energized and get ready for the next leg of the business? And what was that for you
1: or an example of one or two things?
0: So to me, it's about constantly analyzing like, where do I get most energized? And for me, I love the long-term planning. And so for me, it was figuring out like, how do I spend more time in strategy? How do I spend more time thinking about the future? And how do I spend less time in the day-to-day? We talked about Alona, helping Alona manage more of the day-to-day and allowed me to focus more on the future. And the framework we put is like, Alona was focused on this quarter. I was focused on beyond. And so I was able to then carve out a role that I found really exciting where I was able to focus on the future. We were able to do a lot more longer term hiring roadmaps. So we were, we were always at, up until that point, hiring a little too late. We were hiring for need rather than hiring for future potential need, which you kind of need to when you're first starting out because profits are tight. You don't want to spend too much, but eventually you've built a rhythm where you, you can do more longer term planning and you could see further down the road, like, hey, the business is going to double. We're probably going to need double the customer support agents. That's a pretty good assumption versus just like, oh, shit, everyone jump into the customer support tickets because it's blown up again.
1: You've mentioned that there's another one of these patterns that you're seeing, and it happens around 100 million, and mm-hmm. that it even signaled for you that it was time for a career change. What happens at $100 million?
0: So this came from me speaking to a couple companies, a couple CEOs that are at uh-huh. 100 million. What ends up happening at around 100 million is that role happens from being an internal facing role to being a more external facing role. And the reason being is when you're getting up to 100 million, we talked about the people, we talked about performance. These are all internal facing things. But if you look at companies that are 100, 150, like the best companies in the world, number one, they have celebrity CEOs, right? Like everyone knows who's the CEO of Tesla, right? They want to work for him. Can you tell me who's the CEO of Cisco, Dan? No. No, like you have no clue, right? Their performance is directly related to the fact that no one knows who they are, right? Like, I'm sorry, this guy's not listening, but no one knows who you are, buddy, right? And so you have to be a celebrity CEO because in order to recruit the been there, done that executives at that level, they wanna work for someone that they can look up to and respect. And so it's an external facing role. And then you're also thinking about you are in a protection mode. And so you have to be constantly thinking and assessing
1: because once you hit nine figures, everyone wants to eat your lunch. Can I translate this into bootstrapper territory? Because because yeah. I asked you, hey, Eamon, how much should I care about my competition? And you said you shouldn't worry about them until you get to $100 million in revenue. I love that about you. It's so cool that you said that. But also, I get the sense that like you're kind of like, hey, man, there's enough oxygen until then. But yeah. once you get up into that rarefied air, now all of a sudden, we're fighting for oxygen. That's right.
0: Well, it's kind of like going up the mountaintop, right? There's plenty of room at the bottom. <laughs> y- y'all can spread out, you can camp, you can have a good time. Like no need to fight over with, like this small little river, just move, right? Like you're going after enterprising, Ethan, one of your competition go after something else. The only, only time you should worry about competition prior to 100 million, Dan, is if it's impacting your ability to get, for you, your two-sided marketplace, the ability to get either job postings or job seekers. So if you find that you're like struggling, like this other company is eating our lunch to really acquire customers, that's the only time that you should be worrying about competition. And I would argue very few companies under hundred million are struggling with finding customers due to competition. And it's almost always because they haven't nailed down who's their ideal client or they don't have a really good product. It's always an internal decision. How do we better serve our customers and who are our customers? Those are way more important
1: questions than worrying about what our competition is doing. I love it. I think it's true. But at hundred million, not so much the new startup that is actually a legitimate threat?
0: I would argue people talk about Zuckerberg all the time and they they talk down on him. I would argue he's probably one of the best protection CEOs of all time. Him buying Instagram at the time for a billion dollars, everyone laughed at him. And I would argue Facebook would be dead in the water if they hadn't made that acquisition. He's constantly assessing for threats. Him purchasing Oculus Rift is him recognizing that he missed the boat on the phone and he doesn't control hardware. But what could be the hardware of the future? It might be VR. It might be the metaverse. And so him like making those strategic acquisitions, you're really acquiring future potential threats. And I think that Steve Jobs did a great job of this himself. He killed the iPod, which is their number one seller, to launch the iPhone because he recognized the threat that BlackBerry was presenting, where people were being like, I'm not going to carry two devices. I'd rather just keep my MP3s on my phone. And so he's like, well, if they're going to do it on their BlackBerry, I'll just do it with the iPhone. And he essentially killed both BlackBerry and Nokia overnight. It's a mob boss mentality. You got to be a mob boss at that level.
1: We've been talking about a lot of high-level concepts. You took a company from 3 million to 80 million, incredible, but there's a lot of people listening that are really trying to replace their professional incomes and grow their first meaningful step out of the door of location independence and financial freedom. What sort of general thoughts do you have for that crowd, the people that are struggling right now at their laptop, listening to this podcast in the gym thinking, man, I'd really just like to make money location independently and make it sustainable?
0: you always hear these platitudes, the nine to five pays the bills, the five to nine builds the empire. And it's like, you gotta wake up at 5 a.m. and like be grinding to make it happen. Honestly, I think that's putting too much pressure on people that have full-time jobs, quite frankly. That's already a, a big commitment. I know that even if you're working nine to five, you're not just thinking about the job nine to five, you're thinking about it at home, you're stressed out about it. And I think that asking them to do another two, three hours outside of work, I think is just unrealistic. But what I would recommend and this is actually something that I've done multiple times, is carve out 30 minutes a day. Everyone can do 30 minutes a day to work on your side hustle. And this goes back to the triad, the person, product, and promotion. And just focus on one of those three areas. Who do I want to serve? What what knowledge do I have that I could share with them, either with templates or courses? Maybe if you're an engineer, you could code something for them. And then how do I promote it? Is it through Twitter? Is it through Instagram? Is there? Is could I join Dynamite Circle and talk about it there? Like what is my promotion strategy? And you really only need to focus on those three things. Maybe Monday, you focus on the person, Tuesday, you focus on the product and Wednesday, you focus on the promotion. And if you do that for a couple of years, you're going to, I guarantee you build something that's going to drastically make massive improvements on replacing your current income and give you the confidence to eventually put in your two week notice.
1: Very cool. Eamon, what are you going to do next?
0: I, like I mentioned, I am helping other early-stage CEO and founders get to the next level. And that is eight, nine-figure businesses, helping them with these frameworks and coming up with the tools necessary for them to get to that next level. And, and uh, I've been doing that for the last few months now, really enjoying it.
1: Big shout out to Eamon for swinging by the show, Ian and for taking some of his time to sit down with us. We've had a few very incredibly productive conversations with Eamon about our executive skills and how we can improve them. And uh, I think it's going to be a theme here, 2022 on the show. So uh, deeply grateful for his insights, uh, hard one. And uh, he's going to be sharing them with us at our Mexico event here in just a few weeks. Looking forward to that as well. That's it for this week. We'll be back next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. as usual. See you then.